How do we honor the lives of remarkable women from history? That's a question on our minds on this International Women's Day. Well, one way we Americans mark their lives and accomplishments, of course, is through obituaries. You know, it's always been said that to write an obituary is actually to talk about a life, not a death. And yet to look at those lives is also to get a sense of how society assessed them and how they viewed them and also, you know, who was deemed worthy of an obituary at all. Well, in many cases, women haven't been deemed worthy, as it turns out. That was Jessica Bennett, gender editor for The New York Times and a frequent contributor here on The Takeaway. She explains that the majority of obituaries at The Times have been for white men. In fact, in the last two years alone, only about 20 percent of the subjects of New York Times obituaries were female. It's sort of like the Virginia Woolf quote, anonymous was a woman. There are all of these women who have accomplished amazing things, trailblazing women who didn't really get their due in the cultural framework, in the cultural record. Well, the Times is looking to start to change that now with a new project. Jessica Bennett explains what's behind it. It's not just women who we've never heard about, but it's actually women who did things, had inventions, discovered things that men, in fact, got credit for. Mm -hmm. At the New York Times, We've been thinking about this a lot, and we have put out a project called Overlooked. And the idea is that we are writing the obituaries for the women who never got them, but probably should have. So it's a combination of women that you may not have heard of who've done incredible things and those that you have heard of, like Charlotte Bronte, Mm -hmm. who never received an obituary in the New York Times, or Ida B. Wells, the suffragist who is a leading voice of the anti-lynching movement, whose wedding, in fact, appeared on the front page of the paper in two sentences. Uh. But when she died, she received nothing. And so it's, in effect, <laughs> sort of correcting the record while also bringing to light these stories of women. You can find the Overlooked Project from The New York Times at nytimes.com overlooked. Well, Jessica Bennett is joined now by Coabec, editor-in-chief of Jezebel, with the stories of two women they say deserve the spotlight. Jessica, so you contributed to the Overlooked Project, and you wrote an obituary. Yes, I wrote an obituary for Emily Warren Roebling, who was not an engineer, but was instrumental to the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. She is fascinating and one of my favorite type of characters because she didn't really get credit for the work that she did, and she certainly didn't receive an obit, nor did she receive mention in her husband's obit. So her husband, Washington Roebling, was the chief engineer of the Brooklyn Bridge, and he inherited that project when his father, John Roebling, suddenly died after having his foot crushed by a barge while on the construction site. So first tragedy of this situation. So then Washington Roebling comes down with the bends, which is a decompression sickness that basically left him deaf, somewhat blind, somewhat mute, and sort of stuck in bed in Brooklyn Heights, where he would often use binoculars to actually view the construction site of the Brooklyn Bridge. Meanwhile, Emily Roebling, his wife, was going back and forth to the construction site, bringing plans, managing workers, negotiating with contractors who are often crooked contractors, dealing with all of the politics of what was a 14-year construction project. And yet she didn't really get credit in the end. And It was fascinating because in Washington Roebling's obituary, 
He's referred to as the builder of the Great Bridge, but there's no mention of Emily in there. And in recent years, people have become more familiar with her story. She was not an engineer. She was not a trained engineer, but she managed to really be instrumental to this construction of what you know was dubbed the eighth great wonder of the world when, when it was finally completed in, in 1883. There's actually now a plaque on the Manhattan side of the Brooklyn Bridge that honors all three Roeblings. So it actually has Emily's name first, and then Washington Roebling, her husband, and then John Roebling, who is Washington's father. And then it says, in quotes, back of every great work, we can find the self-sacrificing devotion of a woman. I do not endorse that statement. <laughs> No. <laughs> but Emily Roebling was fascinating. I mean, I loved working on this project so much. She was just so ahead of her time. But by the same token, you know, she was sort of this invisible feature of this great build that is still hailed by so many people. And there have been multiple biographies written about her husband and her husband's father and very little written about her. The thing I also like about this project is just how important archives are. And mm-hmm. especially as a journalist, as a writer, as somebody who has traditionally relied on that to inform the stories that I tell, going back and archiving things is such important work. And truly, history repeats itself. Like, yeah. So this is – Overlooked will be an ongoing project, and we're, in fact, asking readers to submit ideas for names that we should look into. And there's just – an incredible amount of women who were, in fact, overlooked. Koa, do you have any nominations? I bet you have a lot. I have many. But the one that I chose to bring into the studio is uh, someone I have been personally fascinated by for years. Her name was Alice Foley. She was a nurse in the early 1980s in Provincetown, Massachusetts. She was a working-class butch lesbian. She grew up in a Catholic family in Boston, just outside Boston, I believe. And she had been a nurse for many years. And then at the age of 40, she had, as far as I can tell, a long-term relationship that went south. And she decided she wanted to remake her life and also go somewhere that was more queer-friendly. And so she got in her car and reportedly drove to Provincetown. She had originally been very burned out on nursing, and she wasn't sure if she wanted to necessarily do that anymore. But once she got to Provincetown, there was a demand for a nurse in a drop-in clinic. And then uh, around 1982, she got a referral for a man who had just moved to town. So she went to go see him, and he was clearly very ill. And the man had told her that he had seen some doctors in Colorado who had urged him to go to Provincetown. And so Alice thought this was bizarre, given that who tells a dying man to move to a small town with no real job opportunities around Christmas time, basically. And so she called the social worker who had referred him. And according to reports, uh, the woman told Alice uh, on the line that she had sent him there because she thought the gay community would take care of him. And it later turned out that this man had AIDS. And so Alice reportedly started seeing more men coming in with these symptoms that she couldn't quite place, kept calling, uh, trying to get federal resources. Nobody would help her. And so she instituted a care model in Provincetown as a nurse with little to no resources. She literally started treating men from the trunk of her car. She would drive around with what 
medicine she had as well as resources. And then she eventually co-founded the Provincetown Aid Support Group, which is considered Mm -hmm. one of the first aid support groups in the country. And the organization continued to grow. The model got bigger. They eventually developed uh, shuttles to hospitals in Boston to get men better care. So she continued to do this work from the 1980s through the 90s. And her care model and her initiative and activism in this greatly predates uh, a lot of AIDS awareness and activism in this country. And she died in 2009. And while she is known and recognized as a very important figure locally in Provincetown, and um, she got an obituary in Boston Papers, nationally, nobody has recognized her for having this pioneering care, empathy, and activism for the AIDS crisis. Wow. What would the right recognition now be? I think that she more than warrants a New York Times obituary. And I also think it's a mistake to frame this as simply the women themselves being recognized for the sake of themselves. Mm -hmm. These are huge cultural, sometimes legislative contributions that benefit us and benefit our archive and our ability to look ahead while also looking at the past. Beck is editor-in-chief of Jezebel, and Jessica Bennett is gender editor of The New York Times. They join us nearly every week here on The Takeaway. And to find the newly released Overlook project from The New York Times, head to nytimes.com slash overlooked. We've been talking about women's stories this hour, women who've done incredible things, but who you may never have heard of. For Women's History Month, I wish more people knew about Lena King Lee. She was a Maryland legislator who in 1971 proposed a renewable marriage contract where residents could annul or renew their marriage every three years, which was pretty bold. Her proposal didn't pass, but she did help to contribute to the adoption of no-fault divorce in Maryland, which I think is pretty cool. I'm Vicki calling from San Francisco Bay Area. We are ready for top action. It isn't that we have to grow into it. We are ready for top action. So we decided to start right at the top of the heap, take a look at what it's like up there. That's the voice of Lena Lee there, Maryland legislator and one of your nominations for a woman who's done big things in history but gotten little recognition. And we heard from so many of you. Hi, Takeaway. My name is Cleo Dettos, and I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. I am in the seventh grade and recently did a project on an absolutely amazing woman, Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler. Dr. Crumpler lived from 1831 to 1895. She was the first African-American woman to graduate with an MD. She also was the first African-American woman to publish a book about medicine. Along with that, she was also a doctor to freed slaves who would not have had the health care otherwise. Hi, my name is Ruthie Jennings. I'm calling from Anchorage, Alaska. I'm calling about Elizabeth Perotrovich. She was of the Clinkett Nation, and she was a civil rights activist in Alaska. And she's recognized as helping pass a anti-discrimination act of the Alaska Territory for the Alaska Natives. She died in 1958. I think you should look her up. She's a remarkable woman. This is Cindy Floyd. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. Sarah and Angelina Grimke, they were early abolitionists. Sarah Grimke actually was the person whose writings were the foundation for the women's rights movement. My name is Margaret Hamilton. I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. I am calling to recommend 
Catherine Dexter McCormick as an unsung hero of the women's movement. She was married to one of the heirs of the McCormick fortune, and she was a friend of Margaret Sanger. When approached by Margaret Sanger about putting up some money for research on birth control, she wrote a very nice check that led to the creation of the first birth control pill. Wow, you guys really stepped up. These calls are fantastic. The unsung history of women living through you, our listeners. And we also heard from some of you who wanted to give a shout out to incredible women a little closer to home. Well, hello, my name is Tom Ray. I'm calling from St. Louis. I'm calling about a friend of mine, Annette Bridges, who single-handedly is responsible for the saving of the building that Scott Joplin owned and was responsible for it being saved as well as made into a state park in Missouri. Hi, my name is Amy from Oakland, California, and the person I wanted to acknowledge, her name is Vicki Abadesco. And she's been doing violence prevention work in San Francisco and Oakland, and she mentors people. Um, She takes kids, and she mentors them and helps them find out who they are. And she's founded an organization called Soul Shop that does violence prevention and bullying prevention in elementary schools, trying to bring that mentorship to kids at a younger place where they could actually use it before they get um, bullied and hurt. And we got this tweet from a listener outside Chicago who said, I think so many of us have unsung heroes in our lives. My daughter, Elizabeth, a retired trauma nurse, and my grandmother, a Scottish immigrant who raised three handicapped children. You know, for me, my nomination has to be Rosalind Franklin. She grew up in England before World War II. She went to Cambridge and mastered an imaging technique called X-ray crystallography. In 1951, scientists suspected that the human code was carried on a thing called DNA, but nobody really knew its structure or how it worked. Well, Rosalind Franklin captured the first clear images of DNA. She revealed the double helix structure that you see in every model in every classroom today. Well, Franklin didn't get along with another colleague at the time, and her breakthrough images were essentially leaked to a couple of other scientists named James Watson and Francis Crick. Well, Watson and Crick used those images to confirm and explain the structure of DNA. They won the Nobel Prize for it in 1962. Franklin got credit in a footnote, and her work was later published in the medical literature. Franklin died in 1958 at just 37 years old, but history basically papered over her vital contribution to science and to the world. Rosalind Franklin discovered the structure of DNA. Who are the unsung women in your life or who you've admired in history? Call us, 8778 my take and leave us a message. This is The Takeaway.